With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play what up it's the crossover friday edition i'm howard beck senior writer for sports illustrated uh folks it's been a strange nba season uh, especially for the players themselves we've had postponements and quarantines daily testing restrictions on their movement where they can eat who they can see no fans in the arenas for most of the season until recently Um, And it's been nearly a year of this, going back to the bubble last summer, of course. And I don't need to tell you how stressful this pandemic has been for all of us. Everyone in the world has has felt it. And players aren't immune. Coaches, referees, none of the folks you're watching in the NBA are immune to this. And it doesn't matter how much money that they make. Uh, Their mental health has been strained, not just by the pandemic, but by the George Floyd killing, Breonna Taylor, the social unrest, the social justice movement, everything that goes with it. Michelle Roberts, the executive director of the Players Association, recently said this, we're playing with fire. Michelle gave that comment to my colleague, Michael Pena, for a story that ran this week on SI.com about mental health within the NBA, mostly focused on players. It's a fascinating piece. You hear firsthand stories from Aaron Gordon, Kevin Love, Jalen Brown, Adam Silver spoke to Michael for the piece. It's a really important story, an important issue. I really encourage you to go read it, but I wanted to go further. So joining me today are two guests, Michael Pena, the author of that story, and who of course uh, hosts the Open Floor podcast for SI. And along with him, uh, Derek Anderson, Dr. Derek Anderson. He's a psychologist who works with the NBA Referees Association. He works for the uh, the Washington Wizards. He's been practicing for 20 years. He's worked with law enforcement, with military, Fortune 500 companies, NFL teams. Um, He was also the lead clinical consultant to the NBA and active in helping them develop their mental health program. He was in the bubble as the the like the psychologist, essentially, that the NBA had brought in for the bubble as a mental health resource for the majority of of the bubble last summer for everybody, players, coaches, referees. So uh, Derek Anderson has has phenomenal insight from working uh, up close with all these folks. Uh, Before we get to that discussion, a quick reminder. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Hit me on Twitter, at Howard Beck. Always appreciate all your feedback. Okay, conversation with Michael Pena and Dr. Derek Anderson about mental health in the NBA. That's coming up, so stick around. 
This is The Crossover, an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship. Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. One, three, two, one. Now, pleased to be joined by my colleague, Michael Pena and Dr. Derek Anderson. Uh, guys, thank you for taking the time on a really important issue. Um, I'm going to jump right in, Michael, with your story, which just, uh, of course, was published this week. The headline of that story was a quote from Michelle Roberts, the executive director of the Players Association, and it was dramatic. She says, we're playing with fire, not doing more. What did she mean by that in do you think that things are as dire um, for mental health in the NBA right now as Michelle was alluding to at the time? Well, you know, I spoke when I spoke to Michelle, it was, I believe, early February. And, uh, you know, the players union in the league were, were having constant negotiations back and forth about the health and safety protocols and, um, you know, how many visitors could players have when they were in hotel rooms? Could they venture outside of hotel rooms um, when they were on the road, when they were at home? Who could visit them? How many tests would those visitors have to take before they they saw them? Uh, The testing was still very strict for all players at the time. And, you know, I think that of course, mental health is inextricable from the entire NBA and has been for the NBA's existence. Um, the circumstances of this season were so unique for obvious reasons, and there were kind of two um, two core pillars of the story that I was trying to kind of wrap around, and one was obviously the pandemic and that those aforementioned health and safety protocols that induce isolation and they keep players from their families. And I think something that I learned actually um, while writing the story is that about, well, Michelle did not have specific data to back this up, but she said just anecdotally that half of all players do not live, that have families do not live with their families, with their partners, with their children during a normal regular season. And so this was very abnormal in that, you know, you can't fly in your, your wife or your partner or your kids um, during the year this year because of the global pandemic and um, obvious um, protocols that were set up to kind of ensure physical safety for the players. Um, You know, you're living, there's a lot of other things about the global pandemic that are just tough on anyone, really. Um, A lot of loss, a lot of grief. Um, There were players who lost family members, of course, and dealing with that during a season is very difficult. Um, the other very, speaking very broadly, um, the other topic that came up that I wanted to address with a lot of the mental health professionals that I spoke to was, you know, we're in these, um, aftermath of, or still ongoing racial reckoning in this country and a social justice movement where, uh, you know, 75% of players in the NBA are, are black and they've dealt with systemic racism and oppression their entire lives. But right now they are kind of at the forefront of this movement that, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure that some players feel about, you know, speaking out, being as educated as possible when you do speak out, um, to say nothing of the effect of it all. Um, And then there's, uh, you know, watching videos of black men and knowing black women have been shot by the police and trying to process that while you're going out and playing basketball games. And this was something obviously that was affected in the bubble as well. And long before all of this, um, going back to, you know, Trayvon Martin, and there's just countless examples and names um, that are very triggering. And so I kind of wanted to look at the compounding traumas um, stacked on top of each other um, and just see what the weight was for players and what their perspective was. And uh, that's kind of what I wanted to tackle um, before the season began when I set out to write the story. And it just seemed like a very arduous, very difficult situation for them. And it has been for many. And I think, and, and Derek, I want to ask you about this, that, you know, people looked at last season 
especially the bubble part of it. And I think that's where fans probably thought, oh, well, maybe that, and some, some were skeptical about how tough that was, right? They're, oh, they're, they're on a resort, you know, all this, all this stuff, minimizing it. But that was the most abnormal part visually because people could see that, okay, yes, they're sequestered. This season has felt semi-normal in some ways. And so I think maybe people kind of got this sense that, well, they should be fine. Players, coaches, referees. Um, but obviously there's an ongoing burden here. So, so Derek, you know, you work with the Washington Wizards, you work with the Referees Association and with the refs. What has been your experience um, this season in particular in terms of gauging the, the mental health of, of these constituencies? Well, so um, it's, it's a bit different for the referees than it is for players in that referees are now more isolated in a, in a strange way than they were in the bubble. In the bubble, while we were there, they had each other. And, um, you know, there wasn't the, the, there wasn't the travel, there wasn't the relocating, there wasn't the uncertainty of scheduling and et cetera, et cetera. There was the separation from family, but as, um, but as a group, the referees had each other for support. Uh, after the bubble, strangely enough, there was more isolation because they had to follow protocols, which kept them in their rooms, kept family from visiting. And they, you know, they were really weren't allowed outside. They were almost quarantined. So there was almost more isolation uh, after the bubble for the referees than there was within the bubble. And for players, um, it was it was a shortened season uh, off season for them between the bubble and the season uh, starting again and adjusting to the rapid changes in their lives. It was almost three life cycles within a calendar year for them. You know, the normal season, then the uh, bubble season, and then the COVID season that was afterward, and and those rapid changes and the disruption of their lives and the inability to kind of become stabilized plus the continuing trauma of all of the existing uh, social justice issues, the, the political climate, uh, and the cumulative stress that they, that they built up over the year uh, with worry about their families, worried about their, their own careers in many cases, and, uh, and their own health. So th- there was a cumulative stress. And wrapped in all of that, it, many of these players uh, had childhood trauma. And some of the social justice movement uh, and some of the political, uh, you know, discord and even the separation from family kind of reignited some of those traumas. They were almost re-traumatized with a lot of micro traumas throughout the year and never really had time to process that, those feelings. They went right back into playing and right back into refereeing. And so... Uh, I, I think what you're seeing is is a group of people who are who have really been exposed to a lot of dynamic change, just like all of us, and had pre-existing uh, uh, stressors, et cetera, from from their careers, and and many of them, a lot of uh, issues that they may uh, they may have just been dealing with or hadn't dealt with, that were kind of uh, exacerbated by the situations. Now, mind you, I say all of that when. Uh, I also will preface that by saying uh, the players in the NBA and the referees are some of the most resilient people and uh, adaptive people you'll ever meet. Um, I'm I'm surprised and always gratified to see how uh, emotionally and and mentally, um, to to reuse the frame the the phrase resilient they are and strong they are. Uh, they couldn't be they couldn't be in the places they are without being that. But having said all of that, there's still a lot of uh, stressors that they've had to overcome and continue to deal with. And obviously, you know, you know, there, there are um, confidentiality things that would govern all of this. So I'm, I'm very uh, much not asking for anything specific to a, a, a person. Sure. But maybe, Derek, it, it maybe it just in the, in the broad strokes, can you give me a sense of like whether it's been a referee or a player or someone else that you have worked with in the course of the last year, when things are manifesting at, at the most intense level for somebody, um, what is it? Like, what, it, how, how is it manifesting? What, you know, what, you know, what, what are the, I guess, worst cases that you've seen in terms of like, do, have people said, you know what, 
that's it. I got to walk away. I can't, I can't live this way right now. This isolation, um, this cut it, being cut off from family has it been more of just, I'm not motivated to, to go do the job tonight. Um, like how serious has it, has it gotten for individuals? Well, in fairness to them, uh, I haven't heard anything that I didn't say myself. And, and I'm not saying this uh, in a kidding way that I didn't say myself while I was in the bubble or going through this season where <clears throat> there were times where I said, I have to get out of this bubble. I can't be separated from my family. I don't want to do this anymore. The work that I'm doing and I, I've been doing it for almost 30 years and I love it. And so I'm, sh I'm certain that there were many cases of players and others, you name it, all walks of life who, who, uh, who set those things where their stresses and their anxieties manifested in a way where they wanted to kind of like divorce themselves of what they perceived to be the catalyst for all of that stress. And, um, and, and certainly there were many times in the bubble, I had to reach out to friends of mine who were professionals who uh, I had to talk through that with. And, and that was my, that was my purpose in the bubble for other people who were feeling that way to come and talk to me. And, and one of the reasons why things went so well, why I developed relationships uh, after the bubble and, and strengthened ones that I had prior to it is because uh, I could really identify with a lot of what they were feeling, the anxieties and stressors. So I'm certain there were plenty of players who thought that and plenty of uh, coaches and staff members and everybody who felt that it, it, it was a lot to handle. A lot. And it continues to be. But I think, like I said, the resiliency of the people that I've worked with has been astounding. And uh, and they they rebounded from those feelings and uh, and sought help in many cases and uh, found ways to connect uh, to the people within that sphere and outside of that sphere in in um, novel ways to to kind of re-energize themselves. I saw a lot more healthy behavior uh, there than I expected, to be honest with you. Michael, in your reporting, and of course, you know, neither the league nor the union is ever going to quantify these things. I'm not sure if they're quantifiable, but did you get any sense of, of how, uh, you know, how widespread these struggles are um, for players over the course of this season? Um, you know, it, it, from the outside, it always looks so simple, right? We're watching the games. It, it looks almost normal, right? They're playing, you know, they win, they lose, you know, you see the same emotions outwardly. There's, there's this weird veneer of normalcy in watching the NBA this season, you know, okay. Yeah. We don't hear fans. We don't see fans for a lot of the season, but everything else seems kind of normal. Um, do you have a sense of just how many players or percentages of, of teams that have had to along the way, um, you know, grapple with this in a way that, that they wouldn't be in normal times. Yeah, you know, that was a big crux of trying to report this piece to get specifics, to get data to inform my reporting and to inform exactly what the problems are. But of course, privacy is such an important factor here, um, an important element in mental health treatment and in the allocation of mental health resources that it was very difficult. Um, broadly speaking, you know, uh, I spoke to several team psychologists who didn't make the final um, cut of the story who would not speak about uh, specific players or specific instances, but said, you know, in their years working with NBA players and working with NBA teams, that there was definitely a growth in players reaching out and needing those resources that have become available in the past few years, whether it be, um, you know, actually engaging in individual therapy with a therapist or a, a licensed um, psychologist or psychiatrist, um, or, uh, you know, just wanting to... Uh, uh, engage with a different type of coping mechanism that maybe they didn't try before and learning about meditation or learning a breathing exercise or anything like that. And um, Derek brought up, uh, you know, referees, and this also didn't make my story, but when I spoke with Kevin Love, you know, he told me uh, multiple times this season that referees would come up to him and um, say, hey, you know, I'm really going through something right now. This season is very difficult on me. I need help. I need to know, you know, who do I reach out to? How do I, I, I get 
help? How, how, who do you speak to? Uh, do the calves provide a therapist for you? Do you have your own? Just how did that all come about? So I thought that all of that was very fascinating. And honestly, um, I said this the other day to Dr. William Parham, but every interview that I did for the story could have been its own story. Um, and wrapping everything together was, uh, you know, I hope I didn't shortchange anything. Um, but, you know, every story is very powerful and there's so many different anecdotes that I came across. Um, but that was one of the more powerful ones. Also, just, uh, you know, Kevin saying that he was he was frankly surprised that referees were going through something because they're uh, they, they aren't in the spotlight as much as uh, as a player would be. And they don't have the, necessarily the type of platform that they can speak out about something that they're feeling and they have to hold things in in a different way than NBA players do. Um, so I thought that that was all very, very interesting. Yeah, Derek, you know, this, this obviously, you know, uh, right back to your wheelhouse with the referees there um, that, you know, I think the NBA has made great strides over the years in making sure that there are certain resources available to players and uh, in the mental health realm specifically. I don't know prior to the last year or so how much the referees were, were, were getting this, whether through the league or through their own uh, association, the, the National Basketball Referees Association. Um, do you, do you, are, are they maybe grappling with it even more so than the players? Because at least for the players, it has maybe become more normalized or part of the, the infrastructure of, of teams. Um, whereas I, I, don't, I honestly don't know how much the referees were, were given those resources um, directly before. Yeah, well, I, I was the league's clinical resource for several years, five, six years prior to this year. And uh, I interacted with a lot of players and a lot of staff and not many referees. So um, I really didn't develop a relationship with the referees until I, I was in the bubble with them and and got to know them. And I started thinking about it. I, I was, you know, I was listening to Michael and it, they're different stressors. They, they don't have the necessary the nece necessarily the celebrity that players have. Um, but they're certainly, uh, in the spotlight during a game and sometimes, uh, after a game and it's never, I wouldn't say never, but rarely is it in a positive way. I mean, they're, they're often villainized during a game. And if you, if you know about a referee, it's not because of the call that you liked it because of the call you didn't like. And, and so they have to absorb a lot of toxicity from, from every aspect of their career, you know, whether it's on the court uh, from players or coaches who are in the moment and are heated and, and understandably, uh, uh, you know, sometimes feel uh, vexed by, by calls or from fans who are a bit vociferous and, and, and a little, uh, and a little, you know, eager to uh, express their disdain for a call. They have to absorb that and remain professional while they travel, while they work out, while they 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 fine tune their craft. And so really, when when I was speaking with them um, and not even clinically, but uh, I did some presentations in the bubble with them. But when I was speaking with them on a more personal level, uh, it, it occurred to me that the, the resources of mental health, even though the league does provide for them, that, uh, you know, they could really use a shot in the arm as far as a personal touch uh, when it comes to mental health resources. And, 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 and they're, a, they're a very tight knit group, a very healthy group in the way that they think and speak and handle the stress, but it is a great deal of stress. So um, I, I, I was surprised at, at when I started to think about it and digest it, just how much they have to endure during a season. And of course, even in the best of times, you know, a lot of things you describe about the, the, the you know, the uh, situation the referees are in and the, the backlash that they take and all the stresses, like that's part of just the normal routine for them. And then you add all this other stuff for the last year on top of it. Um, I'm wondering if you've seen, do are, are more referees, do you think, seeking out, um, you, know, you know, mental health advice than before because of everything the last year has brought? Are there, are there you know, more of them availing themselves now of it? And, and what is your general advice 
been? Maybe, you know, if, if you can give me maybe a little bit of a rundown too, of like if you were doing your, your PowerPoint presentation to, you know, to the referees, I mean, what are the things that you're kind of advising this group on? Listen, you're, here's what you're all dealing with. We all know these are, these are very stre- stressful, abnormal times. Um, without necessarily saying, you know, go, go see a therapist, here are the things just in your day to day that you can do to try to, to, to keep a balance. Yeah, well, um, one of the big things I tell everybody is try not to make life-altering decisions in your most stressful times. So if you, we sometimes do make big decisions to try to escape the stress, right? We, uh, this job is what's creating stress. My relationship are creating stress. When your overall level of stress and anxiety is so uh, elevated because of what you're enduring in your environment on a day-to-day basis, Sometimes things that would normally be a five on a scale of one to 10 feel like a 10 to us. And we make decisions to, to extricate ourselves from situations that we find, uh, you know, toxic. So I say, try not to make your biggest decisions during your highest levels of stress. Um, understand that, uh, that you, there are things you can't control and things you can control. And be very, very cognizant of what it is that you can control and, and, and engage in some of the, the healthy behaviors that you probably have let go because you're tired or you're lonely or you're frustrated. We sometimes have a habit in our most stressed times of going to the things that comfort us, not necessarily the things that are healthy for us. That's why I gained 15 pounds during the <laughs> So <laughs> I, I didn't gravitate towards uh, exercise. I gravitated towards hamburgers. And so <laughs> it was to soothe. Totally justifiable, by the way. Totally justifiable. I'm defending that. Right. Thank you. Because uh, I may be starting a whole hamburger therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> so we'll, we'll do that. So be aware of it. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to stop doing the things that make you feel good, but always recognize that feeling good and being healthy aren't necessarily the same things. So uh, realize when you're lapsing into habits to feel better, but not do better. And, and also be acutely aware that the people you left behind are also dealing with stress, the stress of your absence, the stress of what's going on in our world and environments. And, and if you can be, um, if you can come outside of yourself and, and be helping of those or be there for those people, it sometimes makes what you're dealing with a little less painful and a little less severe that you know that you're giving and listening to someone else who's also in need. And so be, being aware of other people's suffering was, was a big, is a big thing that I say can help and so on and so forth. There are a lot of little mental health tips that you can, you know, that you can uh, take to, to improve your life, but you have to be disciplined about it. That's the other big thing. It's one thing to hear it and to say that makes sense. And then it's another thing to be disciplined about doing it. Uh, it's no different than exercise. It makes sense. And you know, it feels good once you do it. It's not going to give you immediate results. It takes time and practice and discipline in order to be good at any of this stuff and to feel better. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play. Michael, in, in your reporting and all the conversations you've been having, like literally since I think you said before the season began, um, it, can you get any sense of, of how it's impacted the day to day? I mean, obviously the, the, the mental health of the players and others in the league is more important than anything that, that comes along you know, with, with the basketball part of it, right? But the basketball part of it is what we are all in, in tune with. Do, you, do we know, do we believe that, um, that this has impacted the day to day? You know, the, the, you know, there's the rhythms of the season, right? And injuries come into play, guys get in slumps, all the usual just basketball stuff. When we look at this season, and it's been a profoundly strange season in so many ways, do we think that maybe mental health and, and the um, challenges that guys have faced has actually been part of just below the surface, maybe what's going on with, with certain teams or certain players in the seasons they had? Yeah, you know, that's... Uh, there's so many different variables, obviously, um, that can impact mental health and vice versa, mental health impacting on-court performance, which was something that I did try to get to the bottom of, even though that is impossible. <laughs> so yeah. um, that was tough. Um, but, you know, speaking specifically on a just a day-to-day, something that came up time and time again was the testing. And another thing I don't think that people really can put themselves in the shoe. I mean, getting tested is wonderful, obviously. Um, and players were tested multiple times a day. Um, but there's this inability to separate work from life for NBA players. So even when, you know, they're not quarantined or they're not isolated and they're not in a hotel room, the fact that they know that, hey, I have to wake up at tomorrow's going to was supposed to be an off day. And would have been an off day, but I have to wake up early at seven o'clock in the morning and drive to the practice facility and get tested. And work is just constantly on your mind. And you can't, there's a, you know, speaking to players more generally, one of the things that they talk about when they relate to mental health is it allows me to um, get away from the game. Like Peyton Pritchard said, I like to live a double life. I'm a basketball player and then I'm just like a kid. And other players said similar things to me. And the testing, and I'm going to reiterate, is important and was important to have the season um, and to keep people safe and to keep the players safe, but also their loved ones safe who they were around. But at the same time, it was just very difficult for you to kind of separate um, um, who I am as a person versus, okay, I am an NBA player 24-7 until my team is eliminated or the season ends. So I think that that was... Um, uh, a very specific thing that impacted day to day. Um, but that was very difficult for a lot of players to deal with. Yeah. It, it makes me think about Kyrie Irving. Um, and I want to be you know careful about this because obviously I don't want to put you in an awkward position here, uh, Derek, in particular. But I want to use Kyrie as the example of this. Kyrie takes some time off from the Nets. And because we're, we are not informed as the public or as the media about the rationale for it, Immediately, there's a suspicion and in this kind of snarky, cynical uh, view of this among fans. You can see it on social media. Um, we are still, unfortunately, even in the midst of, of the pandemic and everything, a, a fairly mean-spirited uh, world at times in, in sports, I think. Um, and there's no benefit of the doubt given. But it underscores, I think, just that, you know, 
we never know what anybody's going through, right? Even in the best of times, even in a normal season, a guy may need some time off. Um, so Derek, without necessarily addressing Kyrie, because I know that that's a, a stickier thing, but just in general, I mean, um, are, are we all selling short that when a guy takes some time off for whatever unspecified reasons that, that there are at any given time that there are probably something weighing on someone that um, where basketball just and, and work does not become uh, as, as big of a, of a priority. How, how should, I guess the question would be without us, you know, three of us necessarily lecturing fans, but how, how should we treat um, these situations given uh, what we know players may or may not be going through and given what we also don't know at the time that they may take some time off? So that's a good question. Before I answer, uh, Michael, you're 100% right. I had to test every day. And uh, it, it did draw you back into, you never really fully decompressed while you were working with sports. And, uh, and with basketball players, all athletes, I try to tell them, and I've worked with first responders and military, uh, I, I tell them, be sure this is what you do, but this doesn't define who you are because a well-rounded person is a healthier person and able to withstand the, you know, the, 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 the difficulties that come with your occupation. So uh, a great point that you made. And to answer your question, think about this. When you were young, <clears throat> well, when I was young, which was a longer time ago. Uh, when <laughs> me, I, me too. Yeah. When I wasn't feeling well emotionally and I really just needed a break from school, no one would, and my mother's a loving person. She's a wonderful person. But if I said, mom, I, I'm just not feeling it today. I don't want to be at school. There, there's nobody on in earth at that time that would have said to me, well, stay home and, you know, watch some cartoons and I'll get you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and everything will be fine. No, it's like, you got to go to school. You got to tough this out. And, uh, and so we learned very early in our life that if we're broken, mom, I'm sick then I can stay home. But mom, emotionally, I just need some space. Then you go to school. So we all have been socialized to see that, uh, that ask of, can I have some space, personal space, as something that's, why would I give that to you? But if I say I'm physically broken, or even if I seem emotionally or psychologically broken, uh, and rather than just saying I need some mental health time and space, people will, uh, you know, They'll, oh, okay, I'll back off. So you'll sometimes see people use anger as a way of giving themselves space or depression as a way of giving themselves space. I'm not saying it may be conscious, but it's a way of doing that. So the brokenness of it uh, is, is how we try to focus in on mental health or the ask of time to, to heal. And, and, and really, I mean, I don't know Kyrie or his situation, but let's, let's say it's me and, and I take time off. Immediately, people want to give me the label of being somebody who's broken or, or someone who's manipulating the system rather than saying, wow, that's a healthy thing he's doing because he's asking for time to heal himself or, or, or recuperate emotionally and psychologically. So we're, we're, we're socialized to think that way and to be almost unforgiving of, of people who ask that. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And the way you, you, you say it, Derek, it actually just like it really hits hard. Like it feels like um, we all have this responsibility jointly to kind of change that um, that discussion. And I don't think we all do a very good job of that. And, and we in media, Michael and I now, you know, we and our, our brother are all guilty of this on some level that um, that I think that's a lot of it. I mean, I think to the extent that fans might be cruel about this, maybe we are not conveying this um as best as, as we can, as, as the media, um, because it, it is no benefit of the doubt is given. No, you know, it, it's, it's a very harsh reception that guys get if they say they just need this time off, which leads me to this point. So it was, it was, it's been four years since Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan kind of, um, I don't want to say it was like, you know, breaking down some barrier. It's not that others in the NBA hadn't talked about mental health before, but that was a moment. Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan being very open about their own struggles um, in 2017 was a moment. And we, we, we all refer to that now as a, as a flashpoint and that the NBA is more engaged on it now. And, and, um, but there's a quote from, uh, from Robbie Sicka, who's the, the vice president of, of basketball performance for the Timberwolves, a quote from, from Robbie in 
your story, Michael, where he says, I think mental health prior to the pandemic was something that was one of the things that we didn't really openly discuss unless there was a crisis. It was something that we talked about when we found out there was a player who was depressed. It was a very reactionary thing. Now we're talking about it as a proactive thing. So I want to ask both of you from Derek, from being on the inside of this and being active in, in this, this area as a professional, Michael, from your reporting, I'd like to be optimistic and, and think that, okay, the NBA has now used all that uh, experience to, to push this forward and be more proactive about it and be more engaged. But I'm a journalist and I'm cynical about these things. And I wonder like, you know, is, is the league doing enough? Is, you know, where, where do things stand now? Is it um, far beyond where it was in 2017 when Love and DeRozan first came forward? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go first if that's okay, Derek. Um, you know, real quick, I just want to say that um, going back to what you guys were talking about earlier about certain, you know, not knowing what players are going through. You know, I had this conversation with Bismack Biombo, and he was talking to me about, uh, you know, as he was coming up as a basketball player coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, and he had six younger siblings. Uh, he felt the need to be a role model for them at all times. He felt the need to 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 quash tears when they would come to his eyes. And he is a former teammate of DeMar DeRozan's. And, uh, you know, told me that he had absolutely no idea that DeMar was going through anything. He thought he was just a great guy, happy-go-lucky, um, wonderful teammate, one of his better friends on the team, and was frankly stunned when uh, when DeMar tweeted about um, feeling depressed, and then the ball kind of got rolling from there. Um, but, you know, to speak to the... Uh, integration and the difficulty of uh, integrating mental health and mental health resources um, into the 30 NBA organizations, I think that that is still very much in the early stages, for sure. And some teams have been better at it, I think, than others. And it's such a tricky issue because, again, privacy and confidentiality are and trust and honesty are... um, so critical here and you know teams at the end of the day are billion dollar businesses that are trying to win and uh, that is kind of a, a little bit of a crux there and not everyone's motivations might be aligned um, but you know the Minnesota Timberwolves I spoke to their team psychologist uh, Dr. Justin Anderson and I honestly don't remember if this was in the final story because it went through so many rounds of edits and Howard you can probably um, uh, uh, understand but, you know, he talked to me about, uh, you know, this year, like, I was playing Madden with Anthony Edwards. And, like, it wasn't even, like, you don't you don't call it a therapy session. It's just, I'm a therapist, and I'm going to play Madden with you and talk to you and see how you're doing with your day-to-day and how you're dealing with this NBA season. And I can't say that every NBA team has uh, or used their psychologist and their licensed clinical um, mental health clinician to do something like that. Um, but I do think that it is, we're at the early stages, I would say, in, in, in all of this. And I think that, um, you know, sometimes it's not even up to the team necessarily to provide the, re- or it is up to the team to provide the resources, but players still have other options. Um, uh, as Adam Silver said, there is no monop- monopoly on this um, from the union, the league, the teams. Players can independently go out and seek. Um, it's just speaking about individual therapy if they would like um, through their insurance, or they're very some of them, they're all very wealthy and they can pay for um, a therapy. So I think that it's it's still evolving, um, just from the sense that I got, and uh, there's still a lot more work that that needs to be done. Derek, where where would you say things are? How much progress has been made um, in the NBA on these issues in the last few years? And uh, have you played Madden with any of the referees recently? Uh, No, (laughs) I haven't played with any player or referee. Um, Well, I'll tell you, the league, uh, I I remember contacting uh, the league. I was working for the Mets at the time and we were at the 2015 world series and I called the league and I said, I'm a psychologist and I want to help. And in, within two days I was sitting in the league offices, they were eager. They recognized there was a need 
And uh, I was there immediately and started to work. And so I know that, uh, and I don't work for them anymore, so I don't have to, uh, you know, to, to, to ingratiate myself, but I know that they're dedicated to it. And we spent many years trying to figure out the best way to do this. Uh, the team that I left behind there are really dedicated to making mental health a, uh, um, something that's accessible and, and integrated into the culture of the NBA, both at the team level and the staff and the referee level. So I believe the NBA has its heart in the right place and are putting resources towards it. Having said that, Michael is completely right. It's, there's one thing to draw this out on paper. The diagram of what this should look like is very clear, it seems. Uh, we'll put a psychologist in a team. The players will say, oh, my goodness, here's a resource. Let me use this. Here's my private office. I'll take that one hour, talk about all of the things and unburden myself and become a better person and a better player. And then the psychologist will have, you know, his hours will be filled and, and we'll all understand his role and there'll be confidentiality and respect for that space. And uh, it doesn't look like that. It's it, you have to sit down and play Madden with a player. Uh, because you're in their environment, you're in their space, and you have to meet them where they're at. And so uh, the institutions of psychology have to alter themselves a bit when they get into those uh, places, keeping at the foundation confidentiality and trust. Uh, without that, you're dead in the water. And, um, you know, you if you go see a psychologist, you're going there with trust already in hand. Like, this is going to be my psychologist. I'm going to trust them with my problems, whatever. When I go into a locker room, I have to earn trust. And that takes a year, two years. Uh, you know, the transient nature of, a, of basketball or any sport. I've worked for all four professional sports. You're constantly rebuilding it. You feel the pressure of having to justify the money that you're making, whatever that may be. Uh, and... Um, but at the same time, holding true to what you do as a psychologist. And so you don't want to be in the face of a player. Hey, you feeling okay today? You feeling okay today? A player will push you away for that. So you have to be quiet and subtle, yet available uh, and earning trust, but not being too ingratiating. It's, it's a delicate balance. And I think psychologists throughout the league, I get calls from colleagues in all sports who be, Thankfully, because I've done it for a while, but uh, they, they'll call me and say, Derek, how do I do this? Like, this is this is hard, <laughs> you know, like uh, who who is my real client in this situation? Sometimes who you know, how do I maintain these boundaries when I'm getting pushed and pulled in certain ways? And how do I get players to be more receptive to what I have and, and, and to offer? And, and it's just it's going to take time. The the resources don't necessarily mean that they're going to be automatically appreciated and used. We're fighting against a history of people being taught that things like psychology aren't necessarily for that culture, for African-American culture, for male culture, and for the athlete culture. So it's layered. And uh, those, if you think about uh, black, um, the history of black people and things like psychology, those were used as almost tools to incarcerate them or to alienate them or to disenfranchise them. You know, you're, you're crazy, go to jail. <laughs> it wasn't used as a tool to help the African-American community. So for us to expect that it'll immediately be embraced by, uh, by black athletes and, and, and white athletes for, for that matter, because emotional weakness uh, is, that's what they see this as. And, you're a weak link on the team if you're, you know, if you're a baby, if you're a sissy and you can't play. I mean, you know, that's that's some of the derogatory stuff I've heard players called earlier. I, I don't hear that much anymore. And so um, this is what we're this is what we're battling against. And it's and, and I and I implore the leagues and the teams to continue what they're doing and not panic because it doesn't look the way you think it should look. It, it's going to take time to really take root and for it to be worked out so that players trust it and utilize it in a healthy way. Yeah, I, I guess uh, the, the, the quick word, quicker way of saying it would be, if only it were as easy as uh, just sitting down for a couple of games of Madden, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I, I know that I, I can 
drone on a bit. I'm sorry. But. No, no, no. I'm, I, I, I just mean that as like, no, these, these are complicated issues and it is a, a, obviously a long and arduous process to change all of our understandings and, and the framework that we all grew up with. So no, I don't, I don't mean, I didn't mean that as a quip about your explanation. It's more just, if only it were as easy as having the team psychologist sit down and play Madden with, with, uh, with Anthony Edwards, by the way, do we know who won those games, Michael? I do not know who won those games. Um, you know, confidentiality that might, that is be, obviously a yeah, huge thing here. So yeah, no, does that no. fall under client privilege, <laughs> uh, Derek? Who? Yeah, probably. It all. That, don't ask me anymore anything about psychology. Do I? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So let me end on, on one last thing. We have nutritionists all around us, and uh, that doesn't mean that necessarily people go for the healthier meat, right? Like the resources are there. Yeah. Uh, and, what difference does that make, right? Like sometimes there's books all around it, and yet sometimes I go and watch television. And, and so. yeah, no. And the nutrition one is a great, actually, a great analogy because we probably know more today than we ever have in the history of, of humankind about what's good for you, what's bad for you, whatever. And we're all still like, you know, buying the bag of Doritos. So um, let me end on this one. Um, because this is very, very relevant to this. Michael, you you write in the story that um this is, I'm quoting directly, even though the war between non-acceptance and normalization has dramatically shifted toward the latter since 2018, there are still ways mental health remains a complicated subject. Most teams contacted for this story declined interview requests for relevant members of their organization, as did dozens of players who were invited separately to offer their perspective on the topic. Now, neither you nor I would give short shrift to the fact that obviously these are, these are um, sensitive issues, so it's somewhat understandable, but it does also speak to the fact that institutionally and individually, there's still a reticence to, to discuss this, you know, even in the abstract, even a team official who doesn't have to talk about their own experience, it would just be about how they're dealing with it on behalf of their team. Like that there's that much reticence, I think tells us something. 100%. I mean, Howard, when I set out to write the story, I honestly, I didn't anticipate people like, you know, blowing up my phone to want to talk to me necessarily. But I also was a little, frankly, surprised at the organizations that were just say we're going to pass on this. And and there were a lot. Um, I understand why players wouldn't maybe not be comfortable speaking, and that's totally understandable. But um, I was a little caught off guard from the organizational perspective, especially after speaking with people from the league and speaking with um, um, people from the union about just the abundance of resources and the importance, the collective understanding. You know, Derek mentioned earlier, um, I totally agree that uh, there is a 100% commitment to have this as a, at the forefront um, from the league office, from Adam Silver on down. Absolutely. Um, I just think that it's really, I think there's still a stigma for sure. And then there's also this difficulty um, in not wanting to get it wrong um, from the organization side is the sense that that I got. Um, and again, you kind of, you know, you just mentioned nutritionists or even like a strength and conditioning coach. And one psychologist told me, you know, when he was watching The Last Dance and watching um, all those players from the, the late 80s and early 90s who were really skinny compared to the guys today, and just how the implementation of, of of nutrition, of sleep, of of weight training has changed bodies and changed um, 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 approaches for players. And this is something that we're very um, much in the early stages of. And the effect of 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 trying to help the players is just it's. We're early, and um, I think that uh, the integration process is still kind of touch and go and trial by, by error right now. So let me wrap up on this note and we can, we can keep it brief, but I just, I want to steal from Kevin Love who at the end of your story, Michael basically asked the question, you know, what's next on this front. So um, for each of you, um, Michael, I'll ask you first, what's next. I mean, I think more of the same in terms of keeping the resources available. I I think that, you know, I'll bring up a quote that Michelle Roberts said. I don't have it in front of me, so I'll probably I'll just paraphrase. But you know, speaking about where society is, 
with re- regards to um, the stigma of mental health. And society accepting this, I think, goes a long way towards even young players being more willing to seek help and seek treatment instead of thinking that they can do everything on their own, which is what a lot of young players and older players think. And that is the mentality as an athlete. Hey, I'm, I am resilient. I, I'm basically a miracle to get to the NBA doing it my way. And uh, who is to say that I cannot continue on and, and beat this thing, be it anxiety, be it depression, whatever it may be. Um, so I think that that's a very slow process, honestly. And um, acceptance of mental health. I mean, even just getting the reactions to my story now, like there is still such a large segment of, of society that looks at professional basketball players and the money they make and, hey, what does what do these dudes have to, to worry about? And it's just like, it's really, it's, it's sad and a little bit uh, discouraging, but um, these things do take time. And I think that the NBA and the union... And um, many teams are on the right path towards really integrating mental health resources in, a, in an effective way. Derek, what's next? Uh, well, to touch on what Michael said, yeah, I, I mean, I was in locker rooms in the 90s, uh, the early 2000s, and I do see changes, but they are glacial in the way that they move. Um, but I do see differences both in organizations and players in that the, the ones coming out of college have been exposed to sports psychology and psychology in a, in a, at a much earlier way, in a much more healthy way. I think what's next is shifting the conversation from mental illness to um, mental wellness uh, within the league, making the, the talk about mental health not about what's not working, but what is working so that the players find the topic more palatable and less frightening and less stigmatizing. Uh, if, if we can start shifting that, you're, you're never going to change. Michael hit on something else. By the way, Michael, uh, I, I got to read this article because the points you're making are, are, are right on. And, and I appreciate that. Uh, but money, when fans look at this, and they hear you making 10 million, 40 million, $100 million. Like, why do I have to listen to you whine about your problem? What kind of problem could you possibly have? And there's not one of us that doesn't have a person in our life or maybe that person in our life where you think he or she has the world at their feet. And yet they're still sad. They're still depressed. They're still anxious. What, what you have materially has really no impact on how you feel emotionally uh, because the pursuit of happiness is where money comes from, but happiness is not necessarily the pursuit of health. If I'm healthy, I'm, I'm in a position to be happy, but if I'm searching for happiness, I'm not necessarily in a, in a healthy place. So stop looking at what they make, stop looking at what they have and think about the fact that they're 20 some and 30 some year old men who are in a high pressure situation who may not come from the best place and are doing the best that they can. And as far as referees are concerned, these are people who are really trying to do something uh, uh, great with their careers and have really worked really hard and really have to suffer the, the, the toxic blowback of all kinds of people absorb that and remain professional. Just think about what these people endure for a bit, uh, walk a mile in their tennis shoes and, uh, and, and, and know that, where we can go forward is for our fans and for people who are casual observers to, to, uh, to educate ourselves on mental health and mental wellness. And, and that'll make it easier for the players and referees to get the help they need. Amen to all of that. And that's something that I think we all need to, uh, to consider more day to day as fans, as media, as, as consumers of, uh, of the NBA or sports um, guys, th- uh, this has been great. Derek, Michael, thank you both um, folks. If you haven't read it already, go to SI.com and look up Michael's story. The headline is we're playing with fire, the mental peril of this NBA season. Um, it's, it's really great stuff. Um, go, go check that out. Um, guys, again, thank you so much for spending the time uh, on an important issue. Appreciate it. Thank you. Harry. Thank you.
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.